1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the letters that we have in the New Testament, and a good majority of the New Testament is made up of uh, letters that were written, whether it be from the Apostle Paul, as is the case here, or whether it would be Peter or James or Jude or uh, unknown authors. Of all the letters that we have in the New Testament, more is written to the church that was at Corinth or to the Corinthian Christians than any of the others. And it's by far. And the reason for that is because the Corinthians were also by far the neediest of all of God's people in the early church um, age, of that early time when the church had begun. Uh, And the need that they had was that, by and large, they were a very dysfunctional group of people, not necessarily completely unhealthy, uh, not unsaved, but very dysfunctional in the way that they were operating uh, as Christians and collectively as a church. Um, and, and so uh, when, when we put those two things together, the fact that uh, God allowed uh, a combined 29 chapters of scripture to be written to a church that was by and large dysfunctional, I, I think of that and I realize that God is very good and I'm encouraged and blessed by that. Because what it tells me is that even if I'm a dysfunctional Christian, that God's not going to push me to the side and say, well, you'll figure it out when you get to heaven that he's willing to give to me everything that I need as much as as he can in order to bring me to the place where I am no longer dysfunctional. And so it's a great encouragement to me that God has laid out so much. Now, you know, that doesn't necessarily say that we're dysfunctional because we're studying it. (laughs) It simply means that we can glean from what God taught them in the midst of their uh, dysfunction. And so I'm blessed by that. And it's an incredible thing to realize that every time we go through something and that God has to meet a need that we have, he uses the way that he meets our needs to extend to someone else who might have the same need. And so we read the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians and through their needs and God's meeting of their needs, we also are blessed. God is willing to supply what is needed for us. And so the letter begins with the signature of the author. The letter begins for them the way we end most letters in our day. The author addresses himself to them. And the author, of course, is none other than the great apostle Paul, who was responsible for starting most of the churches uh, within the New Testament time. Now, the apostle Paul, over the course of his ministry, went on three missionary journeys Uh, establishing and also strengthening and encouraging uh, the churches that he established and started. The first of his missionary journeys was by and large, I guess what we would consider closest to home. 
He, he started in uh, Antioch, and, which was just in the Syrian region, and he would go north from there, and he would travel throughout Asia Minor and, and just st- start and establish churches in what is today uh, modern-day Turkey. And so that was his first missionary journey, and then he went home. But then on his second missionary journey... And, and you should get an image of it. You can follow the, uh, the black arrow that, that starts on the right-hand side of the screen and just moves northward. And then you see it kind of move northwestern up through the region of modern-day Turkey. And then it comes uh, kind of to an arrow point right before you get to the Aegean Sea right there. And so on Paul's second missionary journey, he crossed the Aegean Sea and he left the continent of uh, Asia Minor and he went into what we would consider today to be modern-day Europe, uh, but then that, that region was just known as Macedonia. And so Paul went into Macedonia. He began way up in the northern part of the region there in the city of Philippi, and then from there to Thessalonica, from there to Berea, and then he makes the long trip way down southward all the way until he comes to Athens, which was then uh, a major metropolis in uh, the country of Greece. And so Paul spends a very short time then in Athens, and then he moves about 50 miles west over to the region of Corinth uh, there. Now, the city of Corinth, which is where this church that Paul is writing to uh, is located, it was situated on an isthmus that connected uh, what was known as the Achaia region from the Centuria region in the Bible. Um, on the map, you'll see it written as Peloponnese or, or whatever, but it was in the Bible when you read about Centuria, that's what it's speaking of. And it's just kind of the division of how Greece is uh, split by that little section of water uh, that goes right through it. Now, that that um, isthmus, if you would, is connecting or separating the Ionian Sea on the western side from the Aegean Sea on the right side. And the reason why I point that out to you is because the city of Corinth, for that very reason, was located on a very important trade route. It connected the western world, which is where Rome was, the capital of the empire in that day, with the rest of the world, uh, or at least the western world. And so much would pass through Corinth. You would get everything that was traveling through, all of the goods, all of the money, all of the economy, all of the culture, all of the influence that would go from west to east and then also from east to west. All of that would pass through Corinth. And thus, we see that it was much like in that day what we would in our day equate with as New York City or as Taiwan or as, you know, a major city that just has much passing through it by, in every different d- way and degree and, and in every different field. It's all passing through that place. And so Corinth was a city that was very modern and it was very affluent and it was very educated very heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. We learn historically that it was a city that was grossly immoral, which is often characteristic of a city like that. Um, if you wanted to insult someone based upon how immoral you were in those days, you would call them a Corinthian. Uh, that's historical, that they, they would do that just because of how um, carnal and, and fleshy and, and wicked they were there. It would be kind of like the modern-day Las Vegas, sin city of the ancient world. The religion of, of Corinth um, would be what we would kind of consider in our understanding to be somewhat pantheistic. 
That is, they just believed anything goes. All gods, we worship it. You want to combine it, we'll be synchrotistic. You can take a little of this and a little of that. You can sacrifice or, or, or worship this idol or this desire. Anything goes in Corinth concerning what you want to believe. They lived by the philosophy of the esoterics, which was basically, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Paul quotes that to them in chapter 15. It was just, that was the way that they lived. It's what they stood upon. And so thus it was a city that was completely given over to sensualism, to indulgence, and to pleasure. It was a godless place. Now, what we discover is that there were Jews there and that there was a synagogue there. But the reason why there were Jews there, as we gather it from the book of Acts, chapter 18, was only because Claudius, who was the, 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 the Caesar in Rome at that time, had expelled all Jews from Rome and some of them not knowing where to go. And that would be Aquila and Priscilla, names that uh, you've probably heard before. They went to Corinth. That's where they went. And so there was a synagogue of the Jews but the spiritual atmosphere or temperature of what things were like there was just nothing. There was no Christians. There was no churches, no Bibles. There was no light there. It was just a city that was completely given over to darkness. And so it was into that setting and it was in that context that now a vibrant yet fearful spirit-filled missionary apostle with a message comes into that city and a message that is so contrary and so opposite of all that was held dear by those in that place. And in, in, in great measure, it was kind of like if you can picture a firefly just kind of buzzing into a den of cockroaches. That's what it was like. And, and it would be like water and oil. The two things just absolutely wouldn't go together at all. And you just see Paul now whistling in, probably whistling a hymn as he now walks in by foot into the city of Corinth that has no idea what's about to take place within their midst. Now, if you were watching this on, on TV and not knowing the outcome of the story, you would almost have like that uh, um, nervousness inside that you're about to watch a fight. This isn't going to be pretty. We're going to see a, a, a culture eat this man alive because what he is bringing there is so contrary to who these people are. Even Paul himself, we gather, didn't expect much to happen when he got there because he it tells us in Acts chapter 18 that when he got there, he just put on his tool belt, found a couple of people that were in his like trade and worked for a while while he waited for his friends to make their way down from Thessalonica and Berea and join him then in Corinth and they would regroup, you know, and had no idea what was about to happen, but even he knew how dark it was in comparison with the light that he had. Now, what's amazing about that is that in that context, one of the most vibrant and really one of the most fruitful churches in all of the New Testament era was birthed. And the question is, how did that happen? How did it happen that one man could go into a city as godless as Corinth and establish one of the most fruitful and effective churches that we have in all of the New Testament? Put yourself in the shoes of the Apostle Paul for just a minute and imagine that it was you. And all you have is you have, uh, you have your Bible, as much of it is, is written within your heart. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You have a calling to go and to reach the lost. And you come into a city like that. Imagine walking into New York City. 
And you have the calling of God to plant a church if you can. And you think to yourself, how in the world am I going to reach this city? How in the world could I possibly make a difference in a place as dark as this? And as we look at this and as we just consider it right from the onset and what took place in Corinth, there's really three reasons why it worked. There's three things that that took place or three, um, I guess you could say they were... um, aspects or characters or uh, devices maybe that caused God to be able to pierce through the hardness of that society and to do a work within that society. So what was it that Paul had that enabled him to make a difference in Corinth? Number one is that there's no culture, no influence, no philosophy, and no religion that can restrain the power of the simple gospel. And Paul had the simple gospel. Now, the backstory of Paul's entrance into Corinth is that he came from the city of Athens. In fact, Acts chapter 18, verse 1, which gives to us the testimony of what happened at Corinth, begins by telling us that. It says that after these things, Paul departed from Athens and he came to Corinth. And that was a very significant experience in the life of the Apostle Paul that became the foundation for his fruitfulness in Corinth. And why is that? Because when Paul was in Athens, just a few days or perhaps a few weeks before coming to Corinth, he had an experience there that I believe changed his perspective of ministry or at least taught him something concerning ministry. Because when Paul was in Athens, which was a city very much like Corinth, the Bible tells us that it was a city that was wholly given unto idolatry. That Paul was stirred in his spirit when he saw the thousands of idols that they would worship in that Areopagus up there uh, at Mars Hill. And he was stirred within his spirit because he saw the idolatry that was there. And Paul did something in Athens that he will never do again. And that is that he became clever, he waxed eloquent, he tried to be relevant and meet them where they were and talk to them in their language using their idols as a backdrop to link the God of all of eternity to them. And he preached a sermon there that you would read, that you would study and you'd say, wow, Paul, I didn't know you could speak this good. I didn't know you had such wisdom and such an ability to connect culture and bring in outside things. And wow, Paul, that was so incredibly clever. There's only one problem. It didn't work. It says that there was a few people that believed and a few that attended to Paul in that matter, but there wasn't even enough to gain traction and no church was birthed in Athens. It was one of the only places that the Apostle Paul went where there was no church and no lasting work that, that, that began when he was in Athens. So he leaves Athens with that experience fresh in his mind and he now comes into Corinth. And when he comes to Corinth, he comes with a whole different perspective and approach. And he tells us what it is in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Notice what Paul says about his mentality and his mindset when he came into Corinth. He said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined, that is, I purposed in my heart, I made a declaration in my own mind 
not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul said, when I came amongst you, I purposed that if I was going to speak in this place, then all I was going to know among you and all I was going to say to you is that there is a Savior who died for your sin and that you can come out of this life because there's resurrection power through his Holy Spirit that's available to you if you would repent and believe in his name. That's what I determined to know among you. And with the declaration of the simple gospel, not trying to sell something through cleverness, not trying to move over a crowd of people by affecting their emotions and seeking to, to, to evoke a, a soulish response, but with the simple gospel anointed by the spirit and the power of God, a work was birthed in the city of Corinth. The simple gospel that, brought, or that Paul brought then to uh, the Corinthians. Romans chapter one, verse 16, Paul said this. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God. And when the gospel is shared in its simple, sincere form, the power of God works in the hearts of those that hear. And the conversion and the salvation is not founded upon the eloquence of the person that presented the message, but rather it's in the power of the message itself that God uses to affect and change the hearts. So Paul brought the simple gospel and the result was that a church was planted. The second uh, thing that Paul did that caused the church to be effective and to take root in Corinth is this, is that there is no heart hard enough to resist the power of Christ's love. And Paul brought Christ's love into the city of Corinth. You'll notice right there in verse one of chapter one uh, where we already read when Paul addresses himself to the church in Corinth, he includes a second person uh, within the authorship of this letter. And that is the man by the name of Sosthenes. That's a great name, isn't it? You can correct me later if I'm not saying it right, because I really have no idea how to pronounce it uh, phonetically correctly, you know, and the whole thing. But Paul mentions this man Sosthenes uh, there in that. And it's a beautiful story uh, to, to realize what happened in the, man, in the life of this man Sosthenes. If you go on and read in Acts chapter 18, you find that Paul met quite a bit of resistance in Corinth by the Jews that were living there at that time. And that was characteristic for Paul. Everywhere that he went, he was resisted by the Jews uh, in, in those cities. And the chief ruler of the synagogue, which was the Jewish meeting house in Corinth, was this man by the name of Sosthenes. And when Paul was preaching through Jesus' salvation, uh, through his name, it says that they all rose up and they took Paul and they arrested him and they brought him into the Roman court that was there in Corinth. And he had to stand trial before the ruler there whose name was Gallio. And as they began to accuse Paul to Gallio, Gallio realized that they were arguing about religious semantics. And he just stopped the trial right there as soon as he realized that. He just said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You brought, you're interrupting my courtroom with an argument about religious things. 
And he said, I, I don't have time for this. I don't care. what This is an argument amongst yourselves. You guys settle this. I want you out of my courtroom. He stops the trial. He throws him out of the courtroom. And it tells us there that the Greeks that had been gathered within the audience took Sosthenes, who was the ringleader of this opposing group that was coming against Paul, and they beat him there within the court. So put yourself again in Paul's shoes. You're seeing the chief antagonist of those that are against you now being beaten for bringing you to court for preaching the gospel. Now, if you're carnal like me, you're going, but not Paul. And so Sosthenes is beaten, and it says that Gallio cared for none of these things. Now, we don't know what happened after that point. But what we do know is that by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, which is within a short span of time after he left Corinth, we see that Sosthenes, not only is he a Christian, but he is with the Apostle Paul at the time that he's sending the letter. It could very well be that Sosthenes was the man that brought word to Paul, who was now at Ephesus, and that now is bringing the letter that we're reading back to the Corinthians in his own hand. But what happened to this man, Sosthenes? I don't know exactly. But I can suppose, and I believe God puts this here so that we can suppose, that something happened within the heart of this man at that time when he saw the reaction not only of Gallio, but the reaction of Paul to the fact that he was beaten. And there was an awakening that took place within his heart that now all of these other people that I have helped in all these other places, being the chief ruler of the synagogue, they've got nothing to do with me. But here the man that I have brought into this courtroom is here to help me up. He's here to move me back out of a place, into a place of safety, and to treat me with a selfless love that doesn't make sense. And something happened within the heart of this man, Sosthenes, and he gave his life to Christ. And we don't know if that's exactly how it happened. But there is power in the love of Christ that can turn the hardest heart and bring them to a place where they will look into the things of God and hopefully then receive the things of God. And we see that Paul had that kind of love in him and he brought it with him to Corinth. The third thing uh, that Paul brings to Corinth is the power of a sanctified life. Notice the way he addresses um, them in verse 2 when he uh, addresses who he's writing to. Notice what it says there again in verse 2. It says, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, he says, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus called saints. And really those two words are one and the same, that word sanctified and then that word saint. They both come from the same word there. It's hagios in the Greek, which really doesn't matter. But what it literally means is to be set apart for the purpose of holiness. That's what it means to be sanctified. And so Paul addresses them and he says, look, if you are a Christian, then you are among those that are sanctified, meaning that you have been set apart from the world for God, for his purposes, and those purposes are that you would be holy or sanct, and thus you are a saint. And that's why Christian and saint is synonymous within the Bible. And so this whole idea is that we are sanctified. Now understand this, and don't tune me out here. The word sanctified is used in the Bible, and it has two meanings or two applications, if you would. Number one, 
is that sanctification or to be sanctified is something that we are positionally. Okay, it's something that we are. It's a noun, a person, place, or thing. And so we are sanctified because we're in Christ Jesus. We've been set apart. We've been made holy. We are in Christ Jesus, and we're complete in him in that positional sense that because Jesus' blood has been applied to our lives, God sees us as perfect, complete, and sanctified. That's our position. It's positional sanctification. But then the other application of it is that there is a practical sanctification. And what that means is that we are in the process, and this is a verb now, it's no longer a noun, something that we are, but it's something that's happening to us. And thus we are being sanctified, and what that means is that God is working now full-time, relentlessly, within our lives to form the character and person of Christ within us so that what we actually are in our living experience matches up with what he's called us as we are complete in Jesus Christ. And so the position of sanctification or being sanctified is what we are. You are sanctified, set apart by God for his purposes. But you are also at the same time being sanctified by the work of his Holy Spirit in you to bring what you are into alignment with what he calls you. And so do you understand the difference there? There's positional sanctification, but there's practical sanctification. And the whole reason that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians is because there is an extreme difference between the two things in the lives of the Corinthians. They are sanctified in that God sees them as complete, but they are not in the place where God wants them to be practically in raising them up to the level that he has for them as he works within their life. And that's the whole reason that Paul is writing this letter is because of that wide gap that exists between those two things. However, Paul himself, when he came to Corinth, what he brought them and what he was able to exemplify in their presence was an alignment, not a perfection, but an alignment between positional sanctification and practical sanctification. And that means this, very simply to bring it down to layman's terms, is that he lived what he professed. Is that when he came to them and he said to them, that this is what's right and this is what's wrong, they could then look into his life and they could see, wow, he does the things that he says. He's preaching this, but he's also living this. And when someone lives according to the way that they preach, there's a power that comes into their life or that exists within their life that then makes them effective when they speak and serve in the name of the Lord Jesus. And that Paul brought to them. And so Paul essentially had the trifecta of what it was or what was important or necessary in order for a church to be birthed. Number one, he brought the simple gospel. Number two, he brought Christ's unconditional love even for his enemies. And number three, he brought a sanctified life. That is that what he professed was in alignment with what he did or the way that he lived within his life. And the effect of that is that a church was born in one of the darkest, most godless places on the planet in Paul's day. Now, why is that important for us as we consider it at the onset of this study? Here's why. Because we live in a time and we live in a society 
where our culture is much like the culture of the Corinthians. We're affluent, we're educated, we're immoral, grossly immoral. We're an idolatrous people. We're pantheistic in everything but what we call ourselves, but by all uh, of our behavior. We are a reflection of the culture of Corinth. And sadly, the United States of America in the day and age that we live in has become a dark spot on the planet wherein it used to be a light spot on the planet. Now, couple with that, every one of us, if you're a Christian here tonight, you have a call of God within your life or upon your life to share this message and to make a difference in someone else's life and bringing them into the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so every day you and I wake up and we go out into this world and we have to ask ourselves the same exact question that Paul asked himself when he came into the city of Corinth. And that was, how in the world am I going to make a difference in this world that is so antagonistic towards the gospel of Christ and towards the message of his Bible? How am I going to do that? Here's how with the simple gospel, with the unconditional love of Christ, even for your enemies, and with the sanctified life. And here's the beautiful thing about that. Anyone can do it. Anyone. You don't have to be the Apostle Paul. You don't have to have gone to Bible college. You don't have to have a degree. Anyone, anyone that's here sitting in this room can leave this room tonight, and you can wake up tomorrow morning, and you can carry with you wherever you go the simple gospel, unconditional love, even for your enemies, and a sanctified life wherein you walk and live according to what you preach and profess and believe. And God will use you in your world in the same way and maybe even more so than how he used Paul in the city of Corinth. And if there's ever been a time that we are needed to be this as an example to the world, it is now. And thus Paul came into the city of Corinth. Many believed, a church was planted, and he spent a a year and a half among them, establishing them and setting them up before he went on his way. Well, he goes on um, after addressing them as the sanctified ones called saints to uh, extend his greeting beyond them. If you notice in the middle of verse two there, he says, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. And so what Paul does here is he extends the greeting beyond just the Corinthians to all Christians. And so that includes us. Even to the day that we're in right now, Paul wrote this letter having in mind that the words and the things that he taught within it would be translated down through the ages of the church and that he couldn't see this obviously, but so that tonight we could be here studying this letter and we could know in our hearts that this isn't somebody else's mail that we're just reading for a different time but that God intends us in this day to learn from these things in the same way that he wanted the Corinthians to learn from these things. And then he says in verse three, his standard greeting, he says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I often find, just like you do, that a lack of peace is always connected to the neglect of or the forgetting of grace that's been extended to us within our lives. We are the byproduct here tonight of grace. If you're in Christ Jesus, it's because of grace. If you're a Christian, if you're headed for heaven, if your life is changed from what it once was, it's because of grace. If God is getting a hold of your heart right now where you are and he's working his reality into you, revealing himself to you, it's a work of grace. It has nothing to do with anything you've done, anything that you are, or anything that you ever will do. It is simply the result of God's goodness and God's grace within your life. 
And when you realize that and appropriate it, the result of that is always going to be peace because you realize, I didn't save myself. I can't keep myself. God's doing a work within me, and that's all I've got to stand on. And there's great peace in it. Now, when I forsake grace and I begin to think it's my responsibility, I have to control things, I've got to save myself, I've got to show God how serious I am, the result of that's always going to be a lack of peace. So grace and peace always coupled together. And now Paul, as he moves forward into verse 4, is going to shift from his greeting now to this very thing of the grace that's been given to them. Notice in verse 4. He says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given to you by Jesus Christ. He says, when I think about who you are as a church and I think about what God has done there and I think about your faces and I see them in my mind, I can only thank God and I know that it's only grace. Now imagine how bad some of those people were. In chapter 6, he's going to tell us how bad some of those people were and some of the things that they were into. And as he just reflects upon it, he goes, God, thank you for your grace. If you can save them, you can save anyone. And if grace can go as far as reaching the Corinthians, then grace can go far. And it caused Paul to just rejoice and be thankful. Well, what was the grace? What did the grace look like in the Corinthian Church. Now he's going to expand on that in, in the next couple of verses. We're only going to go as far as verse 9, so don't get uh, too nervous about um, the length of the study. We're almost uh, towards the end of it here. But, but Paul does something incredible in every one of his letters. And that is that Paul, when he um, addresses a congregation, he always has an order to it. And his order is this, is that he always begins by praising them or telling them the good things that are going on within uh, their life or in their ministry, or talking about the things that God has done for them, the things that are to their advantage. He always starts with the positive, and then once he finishes with that, then whatever correction he has to make, or whatever issues he has to bring up or address, he then does it after the fact. He does it secondarily. He wants them to make sure all the time that they know they're accepted by God, loved by God, kept by God, and then he says, now you've got work to do. And so and we read um, Romans, and there are 11 chapters of Romans where Paul just says, this is what you've got. This is who God is to you. Then six chapters, he says, now, this is where the rubber meets the road and where you've got to work on it in your life. Ephesians, he spends three chapters telling them everything they have in Christ. Then he spends three chapters saying, now, this is how you're to love each other. This is how you're to serve each other. This is how you're to submit. And he goes into then the duty that's attached to what God has done within their life. He does the same thing in Colossians. He does it in Philippians. He does it in Thessalonians. Everywhere, Paul does that. He does it here just the same. There's only one difference. The positive part of this letter is six verses. <laughs> and then he says, all right, now let me roll up my sleeves and let's talk about what, what, what you guys have got going on there. And so he does it. For six verses, he gives it. But it's a very important six verses because what he tells them in these six verses is that they stand and that they exist under an incredible grace that's been given to them by God. And he describes that grace in seven ways. He tells them, first of all, in verse 5, he says that in everything, first of all, you are enriched by him. The first evidence of God's grace within that congregation is that they were enriched by him. 
Now notice that that's not in the present tense and that it's not in the future tense or in the ongoing tense. It's in the past tense. You are already enriched in him. Paul could look at them and he could confidently affirm that God has bestowed upon you by his grace everything that you need to come into maturity and into completion. The apostle Peter says it to the Christians in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, this way. He says, according as his divine power has given, past tense, unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. And that is always the first thing that God does in every life that gives themselves to him is that he enriches you with everything that you need to come from where you are to come to the place of completion. And Paul could look at this church and he could say, no matter how messed up you are in your current state right now, I know that because of the grace of God in your life, you already have laid to your account everything that you need to come into perfection and into maturity. You just need to discover it and unfold it and unpack it but you've been enriched by him. And that's true for us. Everything that you and I need to come into maturity has already been released unto us. It's ours in Christ Jesus. That's grace. The second thing is he he begins now to expand. He says, you've been enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. Now, the root of that word utterance is the Greek logos. And it's where we get the word word, W-O-R-D. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, Logos. And the Word, Logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the word Logos, most often translated Word, here it's translated utterance, but the idea, what Paul is saying, is that by His grace, He has given to you His Word. God's given you His Word. And not only has He given you His Word, But he also adds to that, he says, and in all knowledge. And so he's given you the word, but he's also given you with the word knowledge. And the word knowledge in the Greek is the word gnosis. And what it means is an experiential knowledge. And that's different than just simply a head knowledge. You can study something and get a head knowledge. That's not gnosis. But when you experience something and it becomes real because it's been lived out in you, then that's upon knowledge. It's in you. It's deeper. And so Paul says that the grace of God is evidenced in your midst and that not only has God given you his word, but he's given you an understanding and a knowledge of that word that is translated into your experience and it's made a difference within your life. And the grace of God is always going to do that in the life of anyone that God gets his hands upon. His word is revealed and then that word does something within that life. And Paul says that's an evidence of grace at work within your life. So if you have been affected by the word of God in a way wherein your life is changed now, that's an evidence that the grace of God is upon your life. And Paul says, I've seen it within you. I know that it's there. Then number three in verse six, he says, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. That is that I have spent enough time with you among you to know that you aren't phonies. 
that you aren't just playing church, that it isn't just a religion that you joined up with, but that I've seen Christ at work within you. And the testimony of that presence of Jesus Christ among you is real, and I can validate it in myself being an apostle. Number four in verse seven, he says, so that you come behind in no gift. That is that all of the spiritual gifts or graces that the Holy Spirit imparts to believers were present within the lives of the church. They had the gift of prophecy. They had the gift of teaching. They had the gift of tongues. They had the gift of interpretation. There were gifts of healings. There were gifts of miracles. There were all of the gifts. Paul's going to talk to them about that in the later chapters of, of the first letter to them. He says, it's an evidence of God's grace among you. It certainly is not an evidence of your performance. And if it was, they wouldn't have had those things because their performance was awful. It was grace, but it was evidence. And then he says, number five, he says, um, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fifth evidence of grace in their lives is that if the rapture happens in their lifetime, they're going to be raptured. And understand this church, that even if you're dysfunctional and you feel dysfunctional in your Christianity, or if you're part of a dysfunctional church, or you're going through a season where you just feel dysfunctional before the Lord, understand this, that if his grace is in your life through your knowledge of Jesus Christ, you're going to be saved when the rapture happens. He's going to take you. He's not going to say, well, you didn't quite get far enough up that sanctification thing there, and you're a little too heavy, and I couldn't. He's not going to do that. You're going to be saved. Paul says, you're waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's going to happen. Then number six in verse eight, he says, who shall also confirm you? The word confirm simply means to establish. The word confirm or with firmness or to establish. And that is that he is going to establish you unto the end. And I hope that encourages you because what it means is that if God began a work within your life, he's not going to stop that work within your life until the day that Jesus comes. He's going to establish you unto the end. He's going to keep working with you. He's patient with you uh, in those things. That you may, and here's number seven, be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is that when we stand before him, we're going to stand before him perfected and blameless. And that will be the result of grace. It will have nothing to do with us or how far we've come or what we've learned or the things we've gotten victory over. It will have nothing to do with any of that. It will be completely a work of grace because of the blood and the cross. And Paul is able to look at this group of believers and he's able to say to them, I have seen grace within you and you're established by grace. God's going to finish the work that he began. And here's why God's going to finish that work. Verse nine, because God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The reason why it's going to happen is not because you're faithful. It's not because you're strong. It's because God is faithful and God is always going to complete that which he began. And this, for the Corinthian church, was a very important introduction for them. And it's also a very important introduction for us. And here's why. Because for them, that church that Paul's written to, writing to in that day, they were secure in Christ. And he needed them to know that at the very onset of what he's going to say to them. 
And the reason that he needed them to know that they were secure is because what he's about to say to them is that you've got some work to do. And he's about to say so much to them in terms of what they have uh, in front of them to do that he's almost going to sound like an an irate high school football coach. I mean, he's just going to go from one thing to the next. He's going to get out the whiteboard and he's going to say, you guys have got this all wrong, the relationship that you have with each other and the way that you're behaving and the witness that you're giving out in the world and the way that you're suing each other and the way you're dealing with marriage and treating your spouses and the way you're defiling the Lord's table, and it, you're just tarnishing everything. I mean, he, he really lays into them and everything. But it's important for them that they understand, listen, you're in Christ. He's not going to leave you. He's going to finish what he began, and he gives that to them before. And it's important for us. And the reason it's important for us is because the same thing that God was seeking to do in the Corinthian church is what he's seeking to do in us. You and I are positionally sanctified. That is, we are seen in Christ as complete, whole. But what God sees is he sees the difference between what we are called in Christ and what we actually are in our Christian progress. And God sees that thing, and he is on a relentless pursuit to close the gap between what he sees as perfection and what we actually are in reality and where every one of us begin when we get saved and give our lives to Jesus Christ is light years from where he will ultimately bring us when we're in his image. We start in the slough. He will have us in the kingdom. And if at any moment we forget that the work is completed already and that though we're in the mess of all of these things now, if we forget that it's God's grace and that he sees us complete in Christ, then we'll become discouraged through the work that he's doing within us and we'll be tempted to quit. Um, The the Bible, the worship team can come, we're we're closing. But the Bible um, compares our hearts uh, to a home. It does that in several places. We read it in the book of Revelation where Jesus says, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. And if anyone will let me in, I will come in and I'll sup with him and he with me. And it's God's great desire that that, that we allow him into our lives and, and, and that we allow him to make our heart his home. But once he comes in and he begins this process of sanctification, making us what we're supposed to do to be, he begins to clean out. And we've all experienced that. If you're in Christ here tonight, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He begins to shine his light on things within us. And he goes, what's that? And we go, oh, I don't know. (laughs) And he says, can we get rid of it? We go, yeah, please. I've been trying for years and I can't. But if you can, please take it out. And he begins. He just, he goes, all right, we're going to need a few containers. And he brings them in and he gets, starts to get the equipment and just move things out of our lives. And then he begins to bring things in. And he tears down walls and he remodels and we watch our lives change and we kind of feel like spectators in it because we don't understand how he's doing it. We barely see what he's doing, but we know that things are changing, that there's differences that are going within our lives. And then what happens is we come to a place where we've got this kind of like Christ living space that exists within our hearts. And it's functional and it's clean and he's in there and we can kind of begin to go, ah, Okay, 
Good. This is good. Jesus is here. He's inside. Things are different. Things are in order. Things are humming. You know, we have that at our house. We have living space, but then there's the basement. We don't do much. We throw our, you know, storage. We have a bathroom in our house that's completely unused. It's just, it, it needs, it's just a closed door. It's piled with stuff right in front of it. We don't go in there. And, and we have our living space in our house and we're content with it. We don't pay attention to the rest. And that can kind of become what we are in our Christian experience. But God's not content. And so he goes through and he walks down like a hallway within our heart. And it's almost like a hall of closets. There's doors on the right hand. There's doors on and one by one. He just opens up the doors and we go, oh, Lord, can we, I, I don't, ah. and he goes, we're going to clean it out. We go, all right, clean it, clean it, do it, just do it. And I don't want to smell it. I don't want to see it. Just get it out. And he cleans it out. We go one by one. And then here's what happens, happens to every one of us, is that inevitably he opens a door and as he swings it open, we brace for it. We go, I, what in the world are we going to have to work on next, Lord? And he opens a door and he reveals something to us in our heart. And the room is the size of a gymnasium. And the walls are just caked with filth. And the stench that rolls out of that room because of what's in our heart that we didn't even know was there comes in and we go, oh, no, no, Lord, close it. Close that door. I don't want to see it. Lord, that room is so big and the mess in there is so big that it makes everything else that you've done in my life look like you've done nothing in my life. And how in the world, Lord, can we just close that door? We'll come back to that one in like 50 years. Or, or maybe that can be one of the ones that you change when we're raptured. And, and Lord, just close that door or just sheetrock over it. We don't have to have that door. That whole area of my life, just close it off completely, 100%. You know what the Lord says? I open the door. I intend to clean that room out. We're going to clean that room out. Lord, that's a messy room. I, I don't know if I can yield that part of my life to you. I don't know if I can, I don't, Lord, not, not now, Lord. We're going to clean it out. Why? Can't we just close it? Here's why. Because I made that room. And once I clean it, I'm going to do something with that room within your life that is so marvelous and so wonderful. And you're going to experience freedom in your life because of what I do within that room that you don't have right now. And I'm going to do things through the cleanliness of that room that you could never ask, think, or imagine within your life. And the unintended consequences of having that room sanctified are going to bless you for the ages to come. We're going to clean that room. He says, I came to give you life and that more abundantly. And I came to set you free and whom the son sets free is free indeed. And what God is going to do with the Corinthians and hopefully what he does within our hearts as we go through this epistle is that he's going to open closet doors. And we have the choice of whether or not we're going to yield, and that's all we can ever do is yield, and say, okay, God, clean it. Get it out. Change me. Make me today what I am not. 
and take from me what I cannot get rid of myself. And he says, that's all I've been waiting for. And he begins a work of sanctification. So may we walk with him through it. May we taste it. May we know it. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we consider what's before us, not just on the pages of this book, but in the will of God in our hearts. And every one of us has a hall of closets, God, that we would rather keep those doors closed. But we know, Lord, that your will for us is good. For you said, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. And we know, Lord, that you're so committed to us. To seeing us complete. To beautifying and blessing our lives through your Son and through your Spirit. That you sanctified us. And said you are whole. I see you complete. So may we, Lord, on our side of things, so short-sighted, so weak, may we find it to yield to the gentle prodding and pull of your Holy Spirit within us that says, surrender all to me. And we ask you, Lord, that you would win the war within us, that we would truly know you. And we ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.